your Bible literally gives instructions on how to keep slaves. Where is their worth and dignity then? Welcome to another edition of the Prepared Dancer podcast. My name is Sean Walker and I'm here with Scott Steen. How are you, Scott? Hi, Sean. Good to be with you again. Yeah, so today's topic, uh, which is a bit of a jump from our last topic, if any of you have been following along with us uh, through our previous podcast episodes, we've been dealing with Bill C6, and we encourage you to go back and, and listen to those. Uh, for now, it's it's still a hot topic. Um, but today, we're going to change gears, and we're going to talk about whether the Bible endorses slavery. And, and this, Scott, was kind of a a bit of a change. And so maybe you can touch on why we're talking about this, why this has come up. Well, you know what? Uh, this is a discussion that I've I've encountered a number of times in the past. Uh, it's an objection that's often given against the Bible by people who would be critical of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the many objections they'd make is, well, I mean, if the Bible is such a great book and that it's supposedly God's, you know, uh, moral guidance for his people, why are these commands in the Old Testament, you know, giving instruction to God's people about slavery. But more more recently, though, it, it came up actually just a, a week ago or so in one of my, one of our social media engagements. Okay. Uh, someone, you know, challenged us on something we'd been talking about with respect to the Bible and ethics. And, you know, they threw down the, you know, the example of slavery. And, and actually, here was the challenge that was given. I was talking about the the um, the dignity and worth that the biblical worldview mm-hmm. gives to the human person, right. which is a very relevant conversation to have in our present you know yeah. culture of where we get human worth from. Culture wants to say we created ourselves, sure. but God in fact gives it to us. Well, this person read that, took exception, and the response was. To say that the, your Bible, listen, your Bible literally gives instructions on how to keep slaves. Where is their worth and dignity then? Right. Right. So it's this objection to what I said. So that's kind of where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting because that's always something that's bothered me a bit. And in terms of the, the South, the Southern United States and, and slavery, that it was predominantly Christian, that, that the slave owners were Christian and they they stood on the Bible as their authoritative text to say, this is right. What we're doing here with these slaves is right because the Bible says so. In fact, a quote from, from one of their, it was a magazine called DuBose. Uh, this was back in 1850. Uh, here's a quote from, from one of them defending it. He says, we find then that both the Old and New Testament speak of slavery, that they do not condemn the relation, but on the contrary, expressly allow it or create it, and they give commands and exhortations which are based upon its legality and propriety. It cannot then be wrong. So what would what would we say to that in terms of, yeah, our Bible does say that slavery is right? Well, I think it's always important when you when you receive a challenge like that to, to first of all clear the air on exactly what we're what we're saying right um, because that's exactly the challenge that I, I received right off the bat Sean I think it's it's worthwhile saying looking over the entire canopy of history there are lots of instances where Christians have gotten things wrong <laughs> yes uh, yes I would agree and consequently that. done horrible things. horrible things yeah 
You bring up the instance of antebellum slavery in the South back in the 1800s. It's worth pointing out at the same time that the abolitionist movement, you know, beginning way back and going back to the, the, the 17th century, mm-hmm. sorry, to the 18th century and William Wilberforce, that whole movement was a Christian movement Interesting. based on biblical convictions, right. as was kind of the north-south disagreement on between you know, Christians in the north mm-hmm. and Christians in the south, Christians in the north arguing for abolition based on the biblical principles that were all created in God's image. And that we are therefore all brothers uh, in Christ. So, so it's worth that's worth pointing out just in terms of the history. But I think the way you phrase your question really reflects the way that the challenge we received on social media was right. phrased. And I think uh, before we dive in, before we dive into you know how I responded in this case, I always like to reinforce what I think are some really important principles anytime we respond yes. to any objection like that. And I take my lead from the Apostle Paul, who in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 to 26, he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents, those who oppose us, must be gently instructed, right, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, that God will open their eyes yeah. and, and lead them to the truth in Christ Jesus. So I think that, that how we respond, it's always worth reinforcing that the way we respond is very important. Mm-hmm. The second principle I always like to keep in mind when, when dealing with these things, a great quote by C.S. Lewis, I think this is great advice, that anytime you enter into an engagement of someone challenging or questioning you in your faith or belief in the Bible or anything, Lewis said this, that it's, incri- it's critically important to examine the assumptions hidden within any question. And even the way you phrased your question to me had some assumptions packed in there okay. that before I even try to respond, we need to surface them. Okay. Otherwise, I'm going to be answering your question from the wrong starting point. Oh, and that's going to create some real problems. I like to take some advice from Greg Kukul, yes. who I've mentioned before, who has just a great approach to dealing with challenges by asking good questions. And there are three questions that you can use to respond to a challenge or a question in order to help to to, to bubble the assumptions towards the surface. Here's the three questions. First of all, what do you mean by that? How do you know that? And how did you come to that conclusion? So what I would immediately say and what I tried to say to this person is what you said is it seems like the Bible clearly says that slavery is right. right. And so I would ask you, what do you mean by that? Okay. And how did you come to that conclusion? Right. <clears throat> this person ch- gave this kind of charge that the Bible literally gives instruction on how to keep slaves. In the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament. Yeah. What I think is packed into that statement, that challenge is the assumption that the instructions given in the Bible are an endorsement of slavery. Okay. That is literally telling you, hey, slavery is a good thing. Here's how you should do it. Right? <laughs> so, so instead of just jumping right on this, I, I responded with a question to try and, again, just kind of surface the assumptions. And my response to this person was simply to say, you know, I find it really hard to uh, to respond to general challenges to the Bible without any specifics. And I said, you know, I personally, I don't think the Bible does give instructions on how to keep slaves in the sense that you mean. 
So I asked, could you give me some examples? Where do you see these instructions being given in the Bible? So that was my response. Sure. And I tried to, again, keep the tone respectful. And I wasn't surprised by this. The response came back, of course, with some proof texts, which is right. what I expected. Sure. But the tone remained respectful. Good. Yeah. Yep. And I guess I think that's just good, you know, just good principle for engaging in conversations, especially online, yes. where it's so easy to be, you know, sarcasm and condescension is, is such a, there are so base tools for yes. conversation on yeah. the internet. Which um, doesn't help in conversation because we want to be able to ask more questions, mm -hmm. right? And so if we shut it down right at the start by not being, like Paul said, gentle, and not quarrelsome, then we won't ever get to what they really believe. Right. That's right. Yeah. So, so that's kind of how I responded. And I wasn't surprised. The response I got back was, okay, here's, here are the proof texts. Yeah. And, you know, anybody with Bible software can find them. So sure. she listed them and there was one from Le Le Leviticus 25 and then three from Exodus 21. And then basically, here, here was the summary of their points that were reflected, or the way at least they saw them reflected in the text. This was the response. In other words, you know, Leviticus 25 talks about how you can acquire slaves, male and female, from pagan nations, giving instructions to how the, uh, how the Israelites can do this. In Exodus, you've got instruction on, you know, what happens if a Hebrew sells himself to you as a slave, that you can free him in the seventh year. If he comes to you on his own with a wife, he can leave with his wife. If he comes to you on his own and acquires a wife in your household, if he frees himself, he can't take his wife with him or any children born in your household. So that's just a stipulation that was put in place. There's, there's instruction on what happens if a man sells his daughter into slavery and then the master's not happy with her and things like that. And then there's instruction on what happens if someone strikes a slave, male or female, and if the slave recovers or if the slave dies and what kinds of penalty there is. Mm -hmm. And so the response was, look at it. Here, here's a summary response. You can get a male Hebrew slave to become a permanent slave by keeping his wife and children hostage. A man can buy as many sex slaves as he wants as long as he feeds them, clothes them, and has sex with them. And you can beat both male and female slaves with a rod so hard that as long as they don't die right away, you're cleared of any wrongdoing. And then the final statement is, that's not my idea of an ethical code of behavior. So there it is. How, how to respond to that? There's, there's probably a couple things that I, that I want to respond to in dealing with th this broader issue of slavery. I mean, yeah. obviously, these, these passages strike us so foreign sure. and, and repugnant right, in terms of the way, you know, this, there's slavery going on here. And of course, in our day, we just, you know, the, we're just so, we react to that. I think one of the things to recognize is the very fact that these passages are in the Bible, and this mm -hmm. is the assumption right. packed into our charge, that those instructions are there. Right. That means that God is endorsing slavery, right? right. So in, when you say endorsing, what you mean is, he thinks it's a good thing. Right. That this is the way that life should happen yes. is slavery. Yeah. That okay. this is God's approval of slavery. Right. And, and you know, then how can you worship a God like exactly. that? And so, the, so I think the question that needs to be addressed is, okay, these commands are clearly there. We can't, we can't get around them or explain them away. No. But are they there as some kind of endorsement, God's endorsing of slavery? Or are they there 
simply as a concession. The fact that Israel as a nation coming out of Egypt, and this is the context it's written in, they're coming out of slavery. Right. <laughs> you know, of all people who should be sympathetic towards sure. slaves, right? It should be the Israelites. They're coming out of slavery, but realize that that the ancient Near East was a slave culture. That that their economy, you know, sometimes we 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 find it very difficult to take off our 21st century right cultural lenses, and and we tend to throw back our value system and use our value system to judge the value systems of the historical past. It's, so it's really hard to look back in history. But the reality is that the ancient Near East was a slave culture. That's, that was the economy. You had really two kinds of people. You had people who possessed the means of production by which they could sustain themselves, whether it was land to farm or whatever. And then there were the people who didn't, right? right? The poor people, which was the vast majority of people. And if the poor didn't have the means of supplying their own, you know, sustenance, then the only commodity they had to exchange was themselves. So, so as the language of the Bible uses, if a man sells himself to you, well, because he has nothing else to sell, he has no other means of supplying a living, then here are the regulations. So, so for, first thing is that slavery looks very different in the ancient Near East than, than the picture we have of antebellum slavery of the South of the 17th and 18th century, right. in the 18th and 19th century. The, the, the second thing that's worth noting, Sean, is that what the history shows is that if you looked at the, the broader culture around Israel, I mean, there's something going on here. Right. Israel is not just, a, it's not just some kind of a, a social experiment being dropped in the middle of the wilderness. Right. It's in a historical context. It's in a cultural context. The context around Israel is a slave economy of the ancient Near East. And it's worth noting, and I got this from a book by William Webb or Bill Webb called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, where he notes a number of features of ancient Near Eastern Greco-Roman culture. First of all, in that, in that time, there were virtually no ancient laws restraining abusive treatment of slaves. Secondly, that physical and sexual abuse were generally seen as the owner's prerogative anyway. So really, the slave was your property. You could do whatever you want. And, and that was just a part of the reality of their culture. Uh, in Roman culture, there's actually, they were actually, there are actually recorded laws prescribing the torture of slaves, okay. you know, yeah. uh, as a means of here's how you control your slaves in your household. Here, here's some things you, you should do in order to keep, you know, things like a slave revolt down and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the reality. That's the surrounding culture, right, right in the ancient Near East. So what you see in the Old Testament, it's interesting. I'm not saying this is an ideal of any kind. But what's interesting that Webb points out in his book is the Old Testament law actually presents uh, or demonstrates a progression in the treatment of people, in the elevation of the status of people in in the slave caste of society. First of all, where now significant limitations are placed on masters in terms of the way they treat or mistreat to, to, to kind of temper mistreatment, if not eliminate it all completely. The second thing is that slaves are actually now given generous numbers of days off during the week. Whereas in the surrounding culture, you use a slave, work them to death, right? Mm-hmm. Get the most out of them you can, and, and then you get another one if, they, if you wear them out. So Deuteronomy 16 and Exodus 23 uh, actually give instruction on including slaves in the rest of Sabbath every week. As well as, as well as yearly Sabbath festivals, times of rest. 
and, and even elevating slaves within Israel to participate in corporate worship. Most notably was, was observance of the Passover. Okay. Right? The Passover meal was one of the most sacred meals or sacred ceremonies of Israel because it commemorated God's deliverance of them from Egypt. Well, only Israelites were allowed to partake in the Passover meal. Right. Uh, Exodus 12 and Leviticus 22 make this very clear. However, it also is extended then to include any slaves who are, belong to that household. If a slave belongs to your household, it says they too can take part in this Passover meal, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Suddenly at the religious level, slave and owner are elevated to equal status. They are mm-hmm. equal participants in the observance of religious uh, ceremonies. Of course, you've got in Hebrew, uh, Hebrew law as well, when it comes to a Hebrew man who sells himself as a slave to another Hebrew, mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't necessarily have to earn his freedom. A, a foreign-born slave could do that, right. sell himself to you as a slave, and then work off that payment and hopefully one day earn his freedom. A Hebrew slave was, in the, was actually in the position where after six years, he, he was just released, the year of Jubilee, because God was saying, look at as a Hebrew, as, as Jews, you recognize that you are my possession, that I delivered you. And so uh, amongst, the, amongst you as Jews, you need to exercise the same kinds of, of liberty or the same kind of grace that I showed to you in liberating you. So that was in place for Hebrew slaves. And not only just releasing them, but sending them away with provision, with, with assets to establish their own, their own household. And then, of course, there was also the establishment of cities of refuge in Israel. When Israel, when they finally settled the land, God commanded Israel, now you need to establish cities of refuge that if a slave is being mistreated unfairly by his master, they can run away. The penalty in the ancient Near East for a runaway slave was death, full stop. In Israel, now the slave knew that they had a a city that they could flee to where they could take refuge. And as long as they're in that city the slave owner had no right to come and and force them away and they became under the protection of the people in that city. So what you have happening in the Old Testament, Sean, is actually something, there's something new going on. And and here's a quote from the Anchor Bible Dictionary. Speaking about the Old Testament and, and those slavery laws, it says, as compared to all other ancient literature concerning the, the treatment of slaves, we have in the Bible the first appeal in world literature to treat slaves as human beings for their own sake and not just in the interest of their masters. So the texts are there. We can't get around them. But one of the first things we do need to observe is that the existence of these stipulations Mm -hmm. is a dramatic improvement Mm -hmm. in terms of elevating the status and the treatment of slaves in society from the surrounding culture. As, as it said, it's this, this first appeal to treat a slave as a human being. So the charge, though, might be, Scott, that if we believe in this all-knowing, loving God, why do we need to um, move to that point? Why not, when he gives the law to Moses, say, Moses, here is what society Israel should look like. No slaves. Everyone is equal. We're all equal. Why does he not do that? Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a lot of I, I think there's a lot of things we could say in response to that. Maybe the the shortest answer to that would be 
that God meets us. The, the Bible gives us a record of the holy, perfect creator of the universe meeting fallen, sinful humanity where we are. He, he doesn't come to Abraham, right, <laughs> and give Abraham all of the things he's doing wrong and everything he needs to correct. Abraham is a typical ancient Near Eastern, right, Bedouin kind of existence man. He's got a household. He's got a wife. He's got concubines. He's got servants and slaves, right? God meets him where he is and begins him on this journey of faith towards, you know, becoming the father of Israel. Likewise, he's coming and finding Israel where they are as a slave nation in Egypt, in a slave culture, pulling them out to make a nation of them for himself. And I think, I think it just reflects that God in his grace comes and meets us and engages with us where we are in our sinful brokenness. And, he, in, and because he's coming in grace, he's not demanding immediate righteousness. In fact, he knows he can't. That's the whole point. That were God to, to, to immediately institute and enforce his ideal perfect righteousness in the midst of sinful humanity, that, that's, the, that's the whole point of the gospel. It would never work, right? We would be immediately condemned because we could not meet the requirements of perfect righteousness, and no one can. And that's the point the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 7, is that the law came not to produce in us the righteousness that God requires, but really to expose our, our helplessness to do that. It said the law came so that sin might be seen, our sin, as completely sinful, right? Practically speaking, I think if, if God, in, I think here's a good illustration of why that wouldn't have worked, Sean. Imagine it's 1980 yeah. in the United States and Ronald Reagan has just become president. And I'm wearing acid wash jeans. <laughs> You're wearing a, and I'm playing with my Rubik's Cube. <laughs> right. And we're watching Star Wars, yeah. which we're still doing, yeah, aren't yeah, we? Exactly. <laughs> wearing my Star Wars t-shirt, my original. Okay. So, so we're in the United States at the height of right, you know, right-wing Republican capitalism, yep. the Cold War fighting against communism. And imagine at, uh, on, on that day of Reagan's inauguration – he suddenly turns, you know, the next day he makes an announcement and said, folks, now that I'm president, I actually realize that communism is the best way to lead a country. It's the most right, just and ethical way. So everyone will be treated. So tomorrow we're going to be a communist nation, right? Kaboom! <laughs> the United States would have, would have yeah, melted, right? Completely. We're, we are frail in our humanness. Were God to completely do a 180-degree turn for Israel in terms of their the, the fabric of their cultural makeup and their economy, they, it would have broken. They wouldn't have been able to adapt or adjust. And, and so I would argue that along with, again, you know, why didn't God condemn the fact that Abraham had, you know, uh, a wife and a concubine or that Solomon had many wives or that David had more than one wife? Why didn't God condemn those things? And I think, uh, I think, again, God meets us, and I think it's actually an encouragement for us to realize that God meets us where we are, and he graciously deals with us despite our sin, and that these Old Testament characters reflect the brokenness of sin 
and yet God's grace to, to, to redeem them. So what I'm hearing you say as you're looking at these texts is that your position would be that these are really concessions as opposed to endorsements of slavery. Well, in this case, I certainly would. And, and you know, going back to the objection from the, the person who we engage with on uh, social media, the last thing they said was, that's not my idea of an ethical code of behavior. Right. And I think there is some of the error that people have made in, in how the, they see the Old Testament to be used, all of the laws that are in the Old Testament, is that they are somehow a prescription of God's ethical ideal. I think that's, that's, that's an assumption, and I think it's reflected in that person's objection. Look, at the Old Testament is supposed to be a, a moral code of conduct, right. and yet here you have laws prescri- apparently prescribing treatment of slaves. So how can you call it a, a, you know, a code of conduct or an ethical code of any kind? And my response to this person, and and this would be my general response, would be to ask this question, are all commands in the Bible presented as God's ultimate ethical standard for everyone? I think sometimes- Through all time. Through through all time. I think sometimes the picture is portrayed that, uh, especially with the Old Testament and all those commands, is that we have this Old Testament book of rules. If we check off all the boxes and follow every single rule- that equals or produces the righteousness God's looking for. And in fact, that's what the religious, the Jewish religious rulers, the Pharisees, that's the way they did think. Right. They had this list of rules. Let's follow it. We follow them perfectly. Therefore, we are the most righteous in God's sight. And, and I think that's an assumption that we need to challenge. And I think actually the Bible itself doesn't present all Old Testament laws in that light. First, let me just appeal to the Apostle Paul. He says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Okay. Right? Elsewhere, he says in Galatians 2.16, By the works of the law, no one will be justified. And the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 7, 18 to 19. The former regulation, speaking about the Old Testament law, is set aside because it is weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And of course, he's referring to Jesus. What I find interesting as well is that Jesus himself seems to deny this idea that in the Mosaic Old Testament laws, all those prescriptions, that what we have is God's ethical ideal. In fact, here, uh, this I think is probably one of the best places to look. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 18, which is ironically, Sean, a passage that critics often go to to say, look, Jesus himself says, you have to follow all the law. Right. right? So that means all these slavery laws and how you treat women and all the rest— that Jesus is saying you have to follow that. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Right? So people say, look, there you go. Jesus says the whole law is still in force. So why aren't you Christians following all those laws? Right. right. Notice what he's saying, though. You have to look at Jesus' words. Notice the antithesis Jesus is saying in his statement. He's not saying, I've come to abolish the law 
but to keep it, mm-hmm. right? Right. It's not abolish versus, you know, enforce it. He's saying, I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Okay. It won't disappear until everybody follows every law. That's not what he says. Until the law is accomplished. Well, what's the, what is the law? What is the accomplishment of the law? Right. The accomplishment of the law is the attainment of righteousness in God's sight. Well, Paul just got through saying multiple times, no one is going to be righteous by following the law. It's impossible. Right. Right. And that's because of our sin. So then if the law doesn't produce righteousness, mm-hmm. what Paul had said, yeah. then what is the purpose of the law? Why, why do we even have the law? Yeah, that's a good question. Why did God give it? Right. If it, if it's, if it wasn't to produce righteousness, Paul alludes to it in part in that it points out, it, it reveals our own sinfulness. And that's, that's what Jesus came to address. But I think if you were to, to look at the Old Testament law in particular, I think a, a good way of, of looking at the purpose of it in terms of redemptive history is that God is, God is through Israel barking humanity on this progressive movement toward redemption brought about in Christ. It's a, it's a, you know, if you, if you think about the fall in Genesis chapter three, it's this moment where man's sin comes face to face with God's holiness. And the result is they're cast out, right? There is this, there is this separation between sinful man and a holy God, really, which is an act of grace because sinful man can't live in the presence of a holy God. Sure. So it's as much for our protection as it, as it is for the preservation of God's holiness, lest we be destroyed. So we're cast out of God's presence. Mm-hmm. But then you have this redemptive work of God whereby he's seeking to accomplish what he set out to do in the first place, to have a, a creation that he dwells with and, and a people who worship him. Mm-hmm. And so there's this movement in engaging first with Abraham and calling him to himself. And then this progressive movement of now creating this this people of Israel and God bringing himself into closer and closer proximity, right. his holiness and their sinfulness. Mm-hmm. But there's this, there's this separation that has to be maintained lest God's holiness destroy us in our sinfulness right. or lest our sinfulness uh, corrupt God's holiness. Mm-hmm. Right. But at the same time, God's trying to bring us, draw us closer and bring himself closer to us and I think a good way of thinking about the law, as much as thinking about all the structures of the temple or the tabernacle, that those, those concentric circles of holiness by which the approach to God's holiness by sinful people was their sin was mitigated by these, these careful procedures of approach, right. of, cl- of cleaning, of, of sacrifice, of washing, of all of the rest. I think a good way of thinking about it would be Really thinking about a, like a peace treaty. Sure. And here's, I mean, this, this could not be more relevant right now. Sure. Think about if we could just get back to a peace treaty between Palestine and Israel. Right. Right, right now, we, we would long to see that happen. Yeah. And we pray that it will happen soon. But, but think about, you know, if we could just secure a peace treaty between these two parties. And the peace treaty might look something like this. It might include things like, Stipulating a ceasefire agreement, you know, border agreements, settlement agreements, trade mm-hmm. agreements, common use agreements. So there's this series of stipulations 
And if both parties agree to it and both parties start to follow all of these stipulations of the peace treaty, would that produce peace? No. No. That, that, that would not, all these stipulations being followed, that doesn't produce peace. Peace has not been attained. But what has been achieved is that we have conditions for peace. Right. We have at least a condition by which or in which peace can be pursued mm -hmm. and hopefully attained. And I think that's a good way of thinking about, you know, the function of the Old Testament law in mm -hmm. what God, in giving it to Israel, what God was trying to bring about right. was to create the conditions in which he could bring about peace between his holiness right. and our sin. Paul Copen, in, uh, in the book, God is Good, God is Great, he writes a chapter, Our Old Testament Law is Evil. Mm -hmm. And he refers to the Old Testament law in this way. He says the Mosaic law really reflects a meeting point right. between divine creational ideals, right? Mm -hmm. the ideal in which God created us yeah. and that he wanted us to live in, and the reality of human sin and evil social structures. Right? It's kind of this middle ground where sinful man and a holy God can meet right. and where God can work out his, his arrange, arrangements by which he can achieve peace for us. And of course, the arrangement by which he does that, the means of, of bringing peace through this middle ground arrangement is in the person of Jesus. Jesus enters into the fray. The Son of God comes and he comes and fulfills Right? right? He fulfills the law. And that's what he means by that in Matthew. Yes. Right. What the law was pointing to is peace between God, a holy God, and sinful men. Right. The law could not achieve, it could not produce that peace. Right. What it produced was the situation, what it produced was the conditions mm -hmm. necessary in order to accomplish that peace. And it was accomplished through Jesus. Jesus fulfills the law. He becomes our peace. Right. And now so we now come to God, not through the law, as no. Paul said. We come through Christ. That the, the, the righteous requirements of the law, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, they, they were weakened by our sinful flesh mm -hmm. so that God did through his spirit what we could not do through our, our sinfulness. Right. So the law was needed for this redemptive history. To get to Christ, the law was required. Yeah, right. So, so we would you would argue then that the law was a concession, and so and when we talk about the law, we're talking about Old Testament. What does, if anything, the New Testament say to slavery? So, if, if we're if we're looking at redemptive history and it's going from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and when we're looking at slavery, we're looking at Old Testament laws. But is there anything within the New Testament? That speaks to slavery. Yeah, there isn't a whole lot okay. because, again, uh, the New Testament is taking place in, you know, obviously this is now the reign of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. This is Greco-Roman culture. They are under Roman law is where Israel finds itself. And into the fray comes Jesus to accomplish God's purpose of bringing peace between God and men. So, so there isn't a whole lot specifically stated about slavery. However, we do see something very interesting, Sean. This is brought out in Bill Webb's book that I mentioned earlier, is that, uh, is that we see in the Old Testament slavery texts, mm -hmm. as much as we find them, you know, this is not acceptable, right? Right. 
we see in them a movement away from the absolute treatment of people, of slaves as nothing more than property, nothing right. equivalent to cattle, right, right in yeah. terms of worth and value and, and consideration. The Old Testament laws elevate slaves in terms of the first treatment of slaves as human beings. Right. Bring, actually bringing them into the, the, the community life of the nation, mm-hmm. worship, observance of holidays, things like that. Bringing rights for the slaves in terms of how they're treated mm-hmm. uh, in the ancient Near East. So you see this movement. What's interesting is that from, from Old Testament slavery laws into the New Testament era, you also see movement. Of course, the Roman laws are probably a little different than the ancient Near Eastern laws with it when it comes to slavery, but they're really no improvement. Okay. It may have even been worse. Right. But what you see in Paul's letter to Philemon, there's an interesting case where Paul, the Apostle Paul is actually on one of his missionary journeys and he encounters a runaway slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus meets the Apostle Paul. Paul spends time with him. He eventually leads him to Christ. Onesimus becomes a Christian. And Paul knows Onesimus' master. He's Philemon, a, a, a Christian that Paul knows back in, I think he's back in Israel, back in Jerusalem. And so Paul, now, as a Christian now in this world, Paul's trying to advise Onesimus, you know, now you're a Christian. What should you do? Right now, he's a runaway slave. According to Roman law, the law of the land, right, he's, he's a criminal because he's run away from his master. He has no legal recourse. It's not like he can go out and find a job. Right. He's not a free man. Uh, if it's found out that he's a runaway slave, he'll likely be put in prison or, or worse. Right. He can't sell himself to someone else because he belongs to someone else. So under Roman law, there's only, really only one option for him, and that's to go back to his master. Now, the problem in, in uh, all things being equal, the problem in that scenario is a runaway slave going back to his master probably would have been put to death right. for the crime of running away. Paul sends him back and says, now Philemon, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. He's now become one of us. He's a brother in the Lord. So I'm sending back to you him. him I'm sending him back to you now better than a slave, but actually a brother. And so now you're going to treat him as a brother because that's what he is. We are, you know, we're one in Christ. And so, so is it the ideal? It's, no, it's not the social ideal where we would think, well, what we need to do is see the New Testament completely abolish slavery. Well, that's, that's simply not, that simply wasn't possible at the time. It's not like the church could have changed the society and the social structure of the economy right. overnight, right? What Christians had to do was to learn how to live as Christians in the world as such as it was. Even while they sought to change the world the way the world operated, and as we should too today. Right. right? But at that given time, Onesimus and Philemon had to continue living within the social framework, the social economy that they were in, but now as Christians. And so Paul told them, okay, in this now Roman law culture, mm-hmm. the slave master relationship, or at least legally the way it is, how ought you to live out your lives as Christians? Well, Philemon, you need to treat Onesimus as a brother in the Lord, right. even though he's your slave. Onesimus, you need to look at Philemon as a brother in the Lord, even though you're working for him as a slave. So now you actually work for him, but you should be working for him as you're working as if you're working for the Lord. Be a dutiful, faithful servant. Right. Right? Onesimus, you're the master. 
be a loving, caring master. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's how you apply the Christian ethic right, of Christ in that circumstance, mm-hmm. um, such as it was. So, so it's interesting that you do see in the New Testament this, this mm-hmm. dramatic movement mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the treatment of slaves. Right. We, can't, we can't change the social structures, but we can live out our Christian faith within them and even sometimes in spite of them. So, Scott, in the end, what you're saying is the Bible does not endorse slavery? No. And, and again, if, if we have to just give a quick answer to this, we look at these Old, Old Testament laws, and in them what we see is God in his holiness meeting man in his sin where we are and trying to move us in a direction, right? Trying to create the conditions by which he can bring peace between a holy God and a sinful people. Mm -hmm. And so in many of these Old Testament commands, particularly in Israel's case, what we have in many instances, not all of them, Mm -hmm. but in many of them, are simply God working with Israel as a nation in the culture that they're in. How do I take this ragtag group of people in the ancient Near East and, and, and move them in a direction toward holiness mm-hmm. where I can work with them and bring them to a place where I can bring about my ultimate right. Right, peace plan? Right. And as you look at the Old Testament record, John, very seldom is Israel a willing participant <laughs> right, right, in, this, in this endeavor. And yet God and his faithfulness continues to use them and move them right. ultimately to fulfill his purpose of bringing his Messiah, right. his chosen one, the Savior, that's Jesus, right. through the people of Israel to, to acquire, to attain, to achieve peace for us. Right. So but even when we look over that history of slavery within the Bible, what an amazing way to end, though, in the New Testament, where... Uh, they're admonished to be brothers, a, a slave owner and a slave to be brothers. Sure. And, and I, think that's good. I think that's a good place to end, Sean, of, of just summarizing. Oftentimes as Christians, we have to seek to live out our Christian faith within the cultural context we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly the case for Onesimus and Philemon. It's seeking to live out God's ethical ideal which is, which is reflected in Jesus and ultimately in the command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. Right. There's the ideal. Mm-hmm. And I think as Christians, we, we want to have a role in helping to move the world in that direction. Right. And that's why you have this history movement of, of Christians opposing slavery. Right. I know many Christians got it wrong and thought the Bible was endorsing slavery. Mm-hmm. They were wrong. But fortunately, there were so many more Christians who, who saw what God sought to accomplish or did accomplish in Christ right. that were all brothers and sisters in Jesus. Mm-hmm. There is now lo- no longer male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Right. It doesn't ignore the reality of social categories. Right. What it does is it equalizes the status of all people before God. Yeah. And so we seek to live out that ideal. In, in the way that we conduct ourselves ethically, not just woodenly follow some kind of list of prescriptions from a, a list of laws laid out, right. you know, over time. Thanks, Scott. Hopefully that has helped our listeners prepare to answer the question, 
does the Bible endorse slavery? But as we're talking, actually, I started thinking there may be a question forming in our listeners' minds as to whether or not what we're arguing about here would then apply to other aspects of the Old Testament law. So is the Old Testament law elastic? Is it is it something that changes and, and we can take in our, our time that we live in and interpret it in terms of culture today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had thought about that while we're talking, and I think that's one danger, which is why I was trying to use my words, choose my words carefully right. in saying that not all Old Testament laws were meant to reflect God's ethical ideal, right. but rather to point us towards it. Mm-hmm. Because what I don't want to get into a situation is where we're now saying, oh, well, see, well, God was meeting us. He meets us where we are in our culture and brings, you know, the laws mm-hmm. of the time that are necessary. But that could change. And so, and so suddenly God's laws become culturally relative. And that would make a great discussion. Okay. Maybe, we'll, maybe we will tackle that for next time. But my quick answer to that question would be no. That okay. doesn't make God's laws elastic. Okay. Because certainly laws like thou shalt not kill, right. right, there is a there is a universal nature to many of God's ethical commandments or moral commands. Right. That they are unchanging and there is an ideal in them. Because obviously, if we're gonna love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and if we're gonna love our neighbor as ourselves, there needs to be a universal standard. By, we can't just make up what that means in any given time or culture. So the question then becomes, well, then how do we discern that from the word of God? Right. How do we decide which laws belonged just to a time mm-hmm. and were maybe concessions right. and which laws are binding and lasting? And I think there's a way to answer. There's a good way to answer that. Excellent. And maybe we'll tackle that next time. I'll just say before we close, though, Sean, mm-hmm. that I think some people are interested in this whole subject of of the Old Testament laws and slavery and things like that. Two books I would just recommend Mm -hmm. if you wanted to study further. One is a book by Paul Copen called Is God a Moral Monster? And the subtitle is, subtext is Making Sense of the Old Testament God. So it's really looking at many of the laws, like the ones we looked at today, that we go, oh, really? How could he command that? Uh, It really looks at some of those Mm -hmm. and talks about some of the principles we discussed today. Another one is a book by the book by William Webb that I mentioned, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, mm-hmm. uh, exploring the, hermene- the hermeneutics of cultural analysis. And while I don't agree with all of Webb's conclusions, I think he really does a good job at showing, uh, in many cases, the progression over time of many of the ethical commands toward uh, an ethical ideal. And the slavery one is a great example that we just talked sure. about today. Yeah. You know, there was so much movement from from the culture, the surrounding culture, to the Old Testament commands. And then there was further movement from the Old Testament commands to the New Testament reality. You see this movement, uh, a progression uh, in terms of moving the laws in a direction. So that's another one that would be, be worth uh, reading. It's a little more a little more involved, a little more scholarly. The first book I mentioned would be best for just a general reading audience. Okay, excellent. Mm-hmm. Thanks for those recommendations, Scott. And I think we have a topic for our next podcast. I think we do. We would encourage you to tune in next time. Until then, take care. This podcast has been a ministry of Prepared to Answer. Our mission at Prepared to Answer is to help prepare, equip, and encourage the Church of Jesus Christ 
to grow in confidence of faith by teaching Christians to think like Jesus. To access more resources to help you begin understanding life and the world around you with the mind of Jesus, visit our website at www.preparedtoanswer.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at at prepared to answer or contact us directly by email at info at prepared to May the Lord bless and keep you.